How are we doing, ladies and gentlemen? Pretty, pretty good. What's that? I'm glad you guys are back. I missed having you in here last week. You weren't in here last week. No, none of you were in here. Why weren't we here last week? Thank you. Okay, there's a couple of you that, that paid attention. You were keyed into what was going on. Yeah, we had the GIC last week. So this week, this week, you brought your, Hunter, I'm so proud. You brought your Bible. Good man. This week, we are starting a brand new book. Caution. Did anybody notice the tape around the room? Is anybody wondering why we have this tape around the room? Because it's leap year? Yes, we want you to be careful. Because if you leap, you might fall. Okay? We want you to be careful. No. The reason I had this up, and somebody actually, somebody actually made this comment before they came in. They said that they were kind of wary of coming in because they didn't know what the caution tape was for. It made them a little bit nervous. You see, a lot of times we, we see this word all the time. Or is our computer not working over there? It crashed? Okay. We see this word all the time. We see caution or warning or all these different words. You hear people tell you, be careful. What is the purpose of those words? To caution you for your safety. They're designed to draw your attention to something. They're designed to let you know that whatever it is you're about to use may cause you a problem if you don't use it the way it was intended. In fact, we see these signs everywhere. I had a couple pictures to throw up there, but our computer crashed, so we see them everywhere. Give me, give me some examples. Where do you see warning or... What's that? Yeah, give me some examples of warning labels. Wet floor. What's that? Okay, wet floor and road signs. Shotgun shell boxes. Yes, they have warning labels. Halloween, what? Halloween costumes. Crime scenes. Smokeless tobacco says it may cause mouth cancer. Yes, fishing hooks have warning labels not to swallow. I actually found... You will be amazed at some of the warning signs out there. I actually found guys on a Superman, a kid's pajama set that has like the Superman cape, has a label on it that says, warning, this apparel will not make you able to fly, which means somebody tried it. Then I found another one. It was, it was medicine. It was medicine for a dog. And it said, warning, do not take this medicine in conjunction with alcohol or while operating heavy machinery for a dog, okay? What's that? Yeah, what dog's drinking alcohol and operating heavy machinery? It's kind of scary. Or, or, okay, ladies, I want you to know, I did, not, I did not write this one, but there was a label inside of a shirt. There was a label inside of a shirt that had the washing instructions. And at the bottom of all of that, you know, wash cold, light detergent, dry on low, it actually said, stitched on the label, or give it to your wife, that's her job. I didn't make it, but I did find it online, okay? <laughs> I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. <laughs> I'm not telling you. But see, guys, all around us, all around us, we have warning labels. We have things that are up, put up to caution us, things that are, that are meant to draw our attention. Because if we don't use things the way they were designed, then something might go wrong or something unexpected might happen. And tonight, the book we're getting ready to start, I firmly believe should come with a warning label. When we look at the book of James, and that's where we're going tonight, this is a book that before you pick it up, there should be some kind of warning about this book. Because as you get into this book, you start to find some interesting things. 
you start to find that when you read the book of James, it's a call to action for us as Christians. That when we read this book, it actually says in there about the person who, who reads the word of God and walks away and does nothing is like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and walks away and completely forgets what he looks like. And see, the book of James, as you pick it up and you start reading this book, you start seeing some hard stuff. James gets right to the point and pretty much smacks you in the face saying, okay, you've got this faith. You've got this thing you say you believe. It's time to take this faith and intersect it with real life and bring those two together and make them collide and do what it is that we say we believe as people who follow Christ. I think the book of James ought to come with that warning label because if you can read this book and walk away and do nothing, man, you've missed out. But if you decide to read this book and apply some of the things that James talks about in here, you're going to be dangerous. You're going to be dangerous because Satan's not going to be able to stop you. Because you're going to be doing what God wants you to do. You're going to be the church that God has called us to be, and we're going to be a threat. And that's a cool thing. But you're also going to find some things in here that are going to be hard. Some things that we're going to read that sometimes, you know, okay, God, that, that kind of hurts a little bit. I don't know that I want to address that right now. You see, we've all had stuff like that in our lives, or, or you will if you haven't. There's going to be things in your life that, that you know maybe shouldn't be there, and you know you really need to do something about it and get it out of your life, but you're just really afraid of the pain it's going to take to make that happen. It's kind of like one time I paid $150 for two airsoft pellets. You guys seen those? Little tiny plastic pellets? And I'll tell you why. Do you guys remember a while back I told a story about when I took a group to play paintball and that one kid that wouldn't stop talking about his girlfriend and how we lit him up with the paintballs? Well, we also played airsoft that weekend. And not knowing at the time, Nathan had come with us. Kathleen was down there for that weekend. And Nathan was about two, two and a half years old. And as we got done playing paintball, Nathan started walking around. And there are all these really cool little orange pellets on the ground. So he started picking them up. Didn't think anything of it. We get home a few days later, and he starts coming to Kathleen and saying, Mama, my ears hurt. Okay, well, it's all right. You know, he's got dirty ears. We'll clean them out. He'll be okay. So she just kind of sent him on his way, and then he comes back a little bit later, and he goes, Mama, my ears hurt. So she got a flashlight and looked in there, and sure enough, in this ear, way down deep inside, was a little orange plastic ball. And in this ear, way down deep inside, was another little orange plastic ball. And no matter what we did, we could not get them out, so we had to take him to the emergency room. And they tried, and they tried, but they couldn't get him out. And then they came up with an idea. They said, sir, you're going to have to hold your son down. So, okay, it's <laughs> kind of scary. Here, where, where are we going with this? And the doctor comes back, and he's got this, I mean, this syringe that's probably about six inches, seven inches long, and it's filled with water. He said, we got to flush it out. So, okay, so we lay Nathan down and kind of hold him down, and the doctor takes that, that syringe and just starts squirting that water down into Nathan's ear. And Nathan is screaming his head off. I mean, you would think we were ripping the flesh off of his face he was screaming so loud because it hurt. The pressure that that doctor was putting down in his ear was, I mean, it was just killing him. But then about five seconds later, that little, that little pellet goes, poop, and pops right out. And then we turn him over and try and calm him down and say, son, I love you. We're going to do it again. And we hold him down, and he screams again, and we put the water in there, and sure enough, that pellet pops right out. So now that's how I paid $150 for two airsoft pellets. But you see, Nathan 
Nathan knew those pellets had to come out because they were hurting his ears. But he didn't want to go through the pain that it took to get those pellets out of his ears. You see, that's the way the book of James is. It's going to show us some things in our lives. If we take an honest look at the book of James, we're going to see some things in our lives that we know probably shouldn't be there. Maybe it's just some friends. Maybe it's, maybe it's some thoughts processes that we have in our head. Maybe it's just, just something we heard one time about, about the way we're supposed to act around people, and it's not really the way we're supposed to act around people. But we don't really want to change it. But as we look at James, we're going to see that, that he, doesn't, he doesn't really give us a choice. He says, okay, guys, if you're going to take this faith and you're going to let it collide with your life, it's going to hurt you a little bit. That's why this book ought to come with a warning label, with a caution. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to start in James. And tonight we are going through one verse. James chapter 1, verse 1. Now I promise you, we will not go through one verse every week. It's not going to take us the next three years to get through James. And we may even skip around a little bit. We may actually skip some of the verses, but I encourage you, it's five short chapters. If you sat down and read one chapter a day, it'd take you about 15 minutes and you'd be done in a week. Sit down and read this book. Be ready when you come in here next Wednesday night as we jump on to James chapter two verses, or chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Go ahead and read the rest of James chapter 1. But tonight we're going to start in the first verse. So let's go right to it. Here's what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Okay, let's start at the very beginning. James, who is this guy? Does anybody know? James, thank you. All right, now here's the problem there. There's four James mentioned in Scripture. Anybody know which one it is? It's James. There's four Jameses mentioned in Scripture. Two of them were disciples. The third one, I believe he was the father, or, or yeah, he was the father of Judas. You've got James, the disciple, that's the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. You've got the other guy named James, the son of Alphaeus, and then you've got the guy that is the father of Judas. The fourth one is the brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. This guy, he was known as James the Just. And literary research, <coughs> excuse me, it tells us that this author right here, this is Jesus' half-brother. Now, we know that Jesus had a brother named James because we see it a couple times in the New Testament. If you look over in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, right there we see that this, this, is, this is a guy named James, and he's the brother of Jesus. He's called out right there as the brother of Jesus. And as you study history, you'll see that he was called James the Just. This is a guy who died in about 60 A.D., and it's believed that he wrote the Bible, this book of the Bible about 20 years before he died. So plenty of time for anybody who saw Christ who was still around to refute the things that he's saying in there, just like the Gospels when we talk about those. And this guy was actually killed for preaching. He was killed for preaching about who Jesus was. And as you go on, you read a little bit further in the New Testament, you also see that, uh, um, excuse me, you'll see in John chapter 7, well, we'll get to that in a second. So we've got the first biological son of Joseph, right? How would you like to be the little brother of Jesus? Really? Some of you who have big brothers and sisters, 
Isn't it hard to live up to their reputation sometime? Hard to live up to their shadow? This is Jesus' little brother. You can't get that right. It's not possible. But that's the reputation he's got to live up to. But here's the issue. We've got this book written by James, but the problem is James didn't always believe in Jesus. James didn't always believe Jesus was the Son of God. It tells us that in the New Testament in John chapter 7. It says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers, his brothers, his flesh and blood, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. His own flesh and blood didn't believe that he was the Son of God, didn't believe that he was the Savior of the world. Told him, hey, okay, yeah, you want to say you're, you're God, you're Jesus? Go with your disciples and show everybody who you are because you're not convincing us. This is the same guy that's written the book of the Bible about what Jesus did. So the question is, what happened to him? What took this guy, who was his flesh and blood, the little brother of Jesus Christ himself, who said, we don't believe you, what turned him into somebody that wrote a book about his brother, that wrote a book about who Jesus Christ was? We see a little bit of it in Acts chapter 1. This is after Jesus' ascension and the disciples are all gathered together. It says in verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, he's there with the disciples. He has watched his brother die, and he's mourning. He's with the disciples. He's with his mom. He's with his family, and they, they, have, they have watched their own flesh and blood get whipped, get nailed to a cross, get stabbed in the side, crown of thorns put on his head that cut him, and then they watched him die. That's a pretty big deal. Anybody in here, if you've ever lost a loved one in your family, you know that's not easy to see. He had to watch every single bit of that excruciating pain that Jesus went through. He had to watch it with his own eyes. Do you think that might have had some kind of effect on how he viewed his brother? His older brother who claimed to be the son of God? who claimed to be God incarnate in the flesh, here to be the savior of the world. You know, if that was my older brother, I gotta be thinking, you're an idiot. There's no way I'd die for all these people. If he really didn't believe he was God, you gotta think he's not believing what he's seeing with his eyes. How could his older brother allow his body to go through this? How could his older brother allow these people to do this to him if it wasn't true, if it wasn't real? Either it's true or Jesus Christ is crazy. Doesn't tell us whether James has kind of made up his mind yet. But we get to see a little bit more in the New Testament about what might have changed James' mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, here's what it says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom were still alive, whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so we see a very significant thing right there. James, who watched his brother die, who saw his brother buried, now sees his brother alive. You think that would change your thoughts about who Jesus Christ was? He went from not believing him to seeing him alive after he was dead. Now, most people, if we came to somebody now and said, hey, I just saw my granddad, he's been dead for 10 years. <laughs> you're crazy. Or you're seeing a ghost, and then I, we're all crazy. But James has seen his brother. That's a change in his life. That event, seeing what his brother went through, and then seeing his brother actually do what he said he was going to do, has changed his mind, has taken him from somebody who didn't even believe in what he said to where it tells us in Acts or excuse me in Galatians chapter two it says that James is actually a pillar of the church. He is one of the church leaders in Jerusalem. He's gone from not even believing Jesus Christ to being the leader of the faith that follows him. That's huge. That's what James is. That's that's where James is coming from in this book. And the reason we went through all this, I just I want you to understand, this is not some guy who has just grown up in the church, he's known Jesus Christ his whole life, and he's believed it from his, all the time he was in Awana and Cubbies, all the way up until he graduated high school and went on to college. No, this is a guy that went from, I don't believe who you are, even though you're my own brother, to, I believe you so much, I'm going to give my life for it. That's who this guy is. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Let's keep going. The next part of the verse, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, servant. In the Greek, that word is pronounced doulos, and I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but it's pretty close. Doulos, that basically means you are a slave. That means you own nothing. You don't go anywhere. You don't do anything. You don't say anything without your master's permission, and he's saying a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like being in the military. I don't know, some of you know people in the military. And in the military, you go where they tell you to go. You do what they tell you to do. You live where they tell you to live. You are on their schedule. But you see, even in the military, there are certain things that, that you own that doesn't belong to the government, doesn't belong to the military. But this word that James is using here, that's a word that means it's even worse than that. He owns nothing. Everything that he has, he is saying, belongs to God and belongs to Jesus Christ. He eats because God gives him food. He sleeps because God allows him to rest. He goes to the bathroom because God lets him go to the bathroom. Everything he has, everything he is, fully belongs to God. That's who James is saying he is. He's saying, I'm a servant. His very life, his very being, everything belongs to him. And the difference between being a slave and being this servant that James calls himself, you know, a lot of times we, we think of slavery and we think of some pretty, pretty bad connotations. 
because really, honestly, the way human beings did slavery, it was bad. But this kind of slavery, this kind of servanthood, this is where you've got somebody who is honored to be in that service. You've got somebody who counts it a privilege to be in the service of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. He's not there because he has to be. He's not there because he's being forced to. He's there because he wants to be. And that's the same type of servant that we're called to be. What James calls himself right here, this doulos, this servant of God and of Jesus Christ, that's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of mindset that James shows us we're supposed to have. Can you imagine what our life would be if that's the way we actually lived it every single day? Can you imagine being willing to go wherever God wanted us to go at the drop of a hat? Doing whatever he told us to do without questioning it because we trust him so much that we don't have to worry about it. Because we know our master, our God, our Lord has nothing but our best interest in his heart. That's what James is talking about here. That's the kind of servant he's telling us we're supposed to be. Can you imagine what our world would be like? What our church would be like? What our schools would be like? NFC, Childs, Lincoln, wherever you may go. Imagine what that would be like. People willing to serve God wherever, whenever, no matter what. That's what James is calling us to here. And he keeps on going. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, Anybody know who he's talking to here? Yeah, 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to the Israelite nation. He is writing this book to Jewish Christians. And why he's saying that the 12 tribes of the dispersion here is because these early believers, they've been scattered from Jerusalem throughout the world. They're not all gathered like they were in the beginning of Acts when you saw Pentecost and you saw 3,000 men saved in one day and people are speaking in tongues and other languages and all these people are coming to know Christ. No, this group has now been scattered. And it starts, it starts, back in, or it starts in Acts chapter 8. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. <laughs> That's cool. They're running. They're in fear for their lives. You know, we, we have the opportunity to come together pretty much any time we want to and to worship any way we want to, for the most part. And a lot of times we forget what a great opportunity that is. You see, you can, you can go out of this building, you can go to any church, and you can worship just about any God you want to. Where I used to live in Sarasota, we live about 10 minutes from Siesta Key Beach. And at Siesta Key, every Sunday night, they had this thing called the drum circle. Has anybody ever been down there and seen this? It's, it's kind of cool. You've got all these people, and I mean hundreds of people will gather up in this big circle, and these guys come out with their drums. You, there should be a picture of it on there. These guys come out with their drums. You see all these people gathered around, and these guys, from, from dusk, from right before sunset, about 30 minutes before sunset, they start playing. 
And I mean, they're going nuts. They're playing the drums and they've got people out there dancing. There were other pictures I couldn't show you because there's some weird stuff that goes on there. And they're out there and they're celebrating and, they, and they'll tell you they're there to just to celebrate life, just to get together, just to have fun, just to be around other people. But what they don't tell you on most of the websites where you look it up is that some of the people out there are actually there because they are worshiping the sun. That's why they do it at sunset. That's why they do it at that time of the day. That's why some of the dances, they dance specifically for that. Some of the things that they chant are specifically for that. You see, guys, we have the opportunity to worship anywhere and whatever we want. But this group, this early church, these people that were scattered from Jerusalem, they didn't have that opportunity. They're running. They're scared. They don't know when Saul and when the guys that are working for him are going to break into their house at any point in time and drag out their wife or their kids or their husband or their grandparents or whoever and take them to prison and they'll never see them again. That's who Paul or that's who uh, James is writing to here. He's trying to help us understand that, that, that we, we, we don't have to live in this fear. This group did. We don't have that. We have the opportunity to worship whenever and however we choose to. And we can do it openly. And we don't have to worry about somebody coming and taking us to jail. We don't have to worry about somebody stoning us while Saul, who later became Paul, stands there and goes, get him. We don't have to live in that fear. But these people, they didn't have that choice. And what's amazing about this is what he tells them, this last word that he says he says, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Now, you read that word and you think, okay, greetings. He's just saying hi, big deal. But he's not. That's why it helps to find some kind of commentary, some kind of Bible that will take you back to the original language that these books are written in sometimes. Because this word in Greek, and I don't know if I can say it, chairo is how you say the word in Greek. It doesn't just mean greetings. That word in the original Greek means to rejoice or to be glad. He's saying, I'm James. I'm the servant of God and of Jesus Christ. I am his slave. I do everything because he allows me to. I'm writing to you the persecuted church who is scattered throughout the world. And I want you to be glad. I want you to be joyful. The persecuted church, the people that are living in fear, the people that are hiding, trying to meet, trying to worship their God, and all the time wondering, when is somebody going to find me this time? James is saying, be glad. Be joyful. And next week, we're going to get into a little bit more of that. But can you imagine? Can you imagine reading this and actually being glad? Knowing that somebody's looking for you? Knowing that somebody's trying to stop you in what you believe? Somebody's trying to stop you in what you worship. James says, be happy. This relationship that you have, if you're like me, if you're like James, if you are his servant, if you believe in him with all your heart, if you have given your life to him, it doesn't matter what you're facing. You can be glad. It doesn't matter what persecution is going on in your life, what trials, what hard times. You can be happy. Not because you're happy about what's going on in your life, but you're joyful because you know the God of the universe that created you and he's taken care of you no matter what. 
That's an incredible thing, guys. As we read this, we can understand that this is the same God that created us. This is the same God that loved us so much that in the midst of our sin, while we were sinners is what, Christ, is what Scripture says. While we were sinners. It means right now. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ shed his blood on a cross, gave up his life for you and for me while we were sinners because that's how much he loves us. And when we know that, when we know what that forgiveness feels like, when we know that love that God offers to us, then no matter what happens, we can rejoice. No matter what happens, no matter how we're being persecuted, no matter what hard times we come up, no matter who dies in our family or who gets hurt or what goes wrong at school or what goes wrong at work or anything else, it's not that big a deal because Christ makes it so we can rejoice, so we can know him, so we can know what his love feels like. And my challenge to you guys, as we read through the book of James, Let what he says get into your heart. Let the things that he's talking about, look at your faith. Some of you have been here your entire life. Some of you, you're a whole lot newer than that. But actually sit down and look at the things you say you believe and compare it to what you actually do in your life. And my question is, are you ready to let those two things collide? Are you ready to be dangerous? Are you ready to know that there is a God that loves you so much that he tells you you can do anything through him and Satan cannot stop you? You know, I've, I've, I've heard the statement before that as Christians, we're supposed, to be able, we're supposed to be able to make sure that the gates of hell never open. I don't like that statement. I prefer the statement that as Christians, we're supposed to charge the gates of hell. And we're supposed to knock them down and we're supposed to tear the place apart because that's what James calls us to in this book. That's what James tells us. We ought to have a warning label because we have Jesus Christ in our life. We ought to come with a warning label because through him, we're dangerous. And the question is, are you ready to be that way? Are you ready to live your life that way? Bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you in here would tell me right now, I know that I'm not dangerous. I know that I don't have a warning label on me when it comes to Satan and what he's trying to do in this world. How many of you would say that? Raise your hand. Nobody looking around. I'm not going to call you out. Just ask you to be honest for a minute. Okay, thank you. Put them down. How many of you would tell me you're ready to take the risk? You're ready for Satan to be scared of you. You're ready to come with a warning label because you are so in love with Christ that you know nothing can stop you. Raise your hand. Okay. I want to encourage you. Read this book. Don't just skim it. Don't just read it so you can check it off a list. 
but open your Bible and read the book of James and let God talk to you. Let God show you where he wants you to be dangerous. Let God show you the areas of your life that when Satan looks at that, he doesn't want to touch it because he's scared of what might happen. Because there is caution tape all over your life and your walk with God. God, we love you. God, we thank you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for, for the half-brother of your son. We thank you that you so changed his life, God, that he wrote this to challenge our lives. And God, I pray right now, God, I pray that you put a warning label on my walk with you so that Satan is scared. God, I pray that for every person in this room, for the ones who aren't here tonight, God, I pray the same thing. God, I pray that we will live so boldly and so loud for you that people see us coming and, uh, God, we can't be stopped because we're living for you. If you're here tonight and there's something going on in your life, there's something you want us to pray for you about, you got a green card in your chair when you came in. Write down your prayer request and stick it in this basket on the stool up here. Because prayer is an incredible thing. And God can do some amazing things when we lift each other up in prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and sing.